two-part miniseries, we're able to have uh, Avram Infeld with us, thanks to uh, the efforts of Mike Lefkowitz. Thank you again, Mike. I know that Avram has been not only doing three official programs, but about 25 unofficial programs. In fact, Mike put him in the Great Park and made him speak to uh, random people. <laughs> The big balloon, right, he spoke from the big balloon. Um, if this is your first CSP event, CSP is an acronym, is that correct? Is it an acronym? Which stands for? I'm testing you. Right. Community Scholar Program. This is what year, Polly? What are we going into? What year? Bar Mitzvah year, David is correct. We're going into our Bar Mitzvah year, our 13th year. We just had our Bat Mitzvah year, our 12th year. and. Uh, what we do is we bring the best Jewish thinkers, writers, poets, artists in the world to Orange County, even archaeologists. archaeologists. I know you're going to hear about more archaeologists. Ahuba's driving me crazy. She's an archaeology person. They just discovered something on CNN under the water in the in the. Uh, yes, they don't know what it is. Structure. Yeah. Maybe we'll learn about that. Um, and uh, our core program each year is a one-month scholar program. We bring a person to our community for a whole month. Um, that usually happens in between January and February. And we also bring a summer scholar. So um, if you're not on the email list, you should see me afterwards. I can put you on our email list. We have a Professor Edwin Sarusi, for example, coming June 2nd through 5th. He is a world-renowned Jewish ethnomusicologist, which means he knows everything there is to know about Jewish music. He's going to do four programs. Um, one program is going to be about Eastern European Jewish music and its modern offsprings. One program, get this, is called <laughs> Judeo-Spanish Mystique, Ancient and Modern in Contemporary Sephardic Music. Okay? And you'll be here because it's June 2nd through 5th, so you won't yeah, be in Israel yet. And uh, another program he'll be doing is Singing Israeliness, Popular Music, and Israeli Cultural Identity. He's also going to be doing Sound and Music of the Synagogue. So June 2nd through 5th, come and see what we do. May 30th, um, CSP has organized a special program in connection with the Laguna Playhouse. There is a show um, written by Hershey Felder entitled The Pianist of, Pianist of Williston Lane. We have special tickets, and if you want, you can get the tickets and or join us for dinner on May 30th. So please get those tickets before they are sold out. I talked about June 2nd through 5th. June 18th, what are we doing? Where's uh? Erwin Chemerinsky will be speaking at University Synagogue at 1215. Dean Erwin Chemerinsky will be speaking three major cases. Marriage Equality, Voter Registration Act, Affirmative Action. Yeah, the Supreme Court has massive cases in front of it. They're deciding. Uh, last year we had Professor Chemerin Dean Chemerinsky speak. We had 325 people show up. I don't know if we'll have that many this year, but the cases are very important and you'll be invited to attend. And then on um, June 28th, it's Shabbat Alive 10, our 10th annual Shabbat Alive. This year we'll be back at Bomber Canyon. And our theme is, um, it's going to be a gospel Shabbat. We have a 30-member gospel choir coming with a cantor from L.A. And we'll be gospeling out in the woods. So I hope you'll attend. We have Grendel back there who's trying his best to capture everything that Abraham says for our iTunes site. If you like, if you know about iTunes, just type in OCCSP Podcasts. Grendel says, and I have confirmed, that we have over 120 CSP lectures and presentations on there, and including we're trying to capture as much as we can from Abraham and put it up there as well. Um, we're also upgrading our whole CSP website to the next month or so. You'll be able to go there and listen to lectures on that site. There'll be a featured lecture and then a link to the um, iTunes, okay? With that, it's tradition at CSP. We all take out our phones at this moment. We look at it. We make sure there's nothing important 
and then we turn it off. Or we put it on very quiet vibrate mode. Some people have a very loud vibrate mode. That's not acceptable. So if it's a loud vibrate mode, please turn it off. Otherwise, um, as I mentioned yesterday, unfortunately, we lost one of our CSP um, supporters, uh, Bernard Gilmore. You, know, you, you may all know or may not know, but uh, uh, Bernard passed away this past weekend. And um, Phyllis, is, uh, Phyllis and Bernard for many years have been supporters of CSP at the patron level. Um, if you are available, it's been hard because we've had events every night, but I think they're still doing Shiva tomorrow night at her house in Irvine. I sent you all an email. You can make it over there. That would be great. Um, also, um, on the Elsters, Andy Elster lost his mom. Um, are you guys still dominating? Are you done with Shiva? Shiva's done. Okay, um, but I, just, I did want to acknowledge that. And um, so uh, you all know, and if you could help out, or at least maybe send Phyllis a note, that would be great. Uh, and what I said was I dedicated this, this um, mini-series to the memory of Bernard Gilmore. Okay, we've done the topic, the five-legged table theory that was yesterday at lunch. Last night, if you were at Bethel, we did 10 steps to understanding Israel. Today, our final topic um, during this visit is leadership and peoplehood. I have some handouts. I'm not allowed to hand these out yet. You'll tell me when I can hand them out. I have enough for everyone to please share every two people. Um, should I introduce you? Yes, why not? Avram Infeld has invested a lifetime building Jewish identity and strengthening the state of Israel. He's the founder and director of a succession of innovative educational institutions and today serves as a consultant um, to the Reut, to the Reut Institute, uh, as a member of the faculty at the Mandel Institute, and expresses his love for Limud Enterprise by serving as a roving ambassador for Limud International. Is that an official title or unofficial? It's an official title. Okay. Yes? I guess, yeah. Oh, I'm not even done introducing you, so. Um, <laughs> let's see. In the 70s, he founded Melit, a nonprofit educational service institution that fosters Jewish identity rooted in pluralistic understanding of Jewish life and the centrality of Israel. So you've been doing this for a long time. He also served as chairman of Arevim, director of the Birthright Israel Planning Process, founding chairman of the San Francisco Federation's Amuntah in Israel, chairman of the board of the Israel Experience, um, an independent company created by the Jewish Agency. In the late 70s and early 80s, concurrently with above, he was also director general of both Gesher Educational Affiliates and Shalom Hartman Institute. Um, he served as the first community shaliach in Baltimore, Maryland, and as director of the Jewish Agency's Youth Department in Great Britain. In 2003, he was appointed president and international director of Hillel, Foundation for Jewish Campus Life, and served in that capacity until September 2006, when he returned to Israel to assume the presidency of the, is it Chayis? Chase. Chase Family Foundation, Zechrona Libracha. Yes. He continues to serve as president emeritus of Hillel International, a native of South Africa. He does not think he has an accent, but you can determine that for yourselves. He immigrated to Israel in 1959. He's a graduate of Hebrew University in Bible and Jewish history and of Tel Aviv's University uh, Law School. I did, I did not know you were a fellow attorney. In 2005, he was awarded the Hebrew University of Jerusalem's prestigious Samuel Rothberg Prize for Jewish Education, the first specialist in informal Jewish education to be so honored. I spoke to my mother, uh, as you may, not, may, may have heard. Um, Abram grew up in South Africa, and he was very close friends with my, uh, with my uncle, um, Colin, and he told me to tell my mom that he remembers her because my mother was the youngest kid and would always try to play with them, and I would, would always tell her to leave them alone. So my mother said, you tell the people that uh, he was a, you know, he created issues and waves when he was in South Africa. Okay, tell them the plate story. 
so one story was Abraham went to camp and decided he wanted his house to be a little more from and came home to his parents and said it's time to be kosher here. Apparently there was a disagreement with your father or your mother. So he went to the cupboard, took all the plates out, and smashed them all. Did, did they actually become kosher after that? Or who knows? Yeah. With that introduction and story, I wanted to uh, welcome you for your last program. Thank you very much for being here again. And I hope you've had a nice time. And I hope that Mike has shown you the highlights of Orange County, California. Thank you all for coming as well. Thank you very much, Ari. And I. Uh, I never expected that story, but it's a true story. Uh, eventually, I think, 50 years later, my parents forgave me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for me, being here has been an interesting experience. First of all, I'm very grateful to the hosting that was given me by Mike and Sheila Lefkowitz, and uh, they were <coughs> unbelievably uh, helpful, uh, welcoming to me. Uh, Mike and I, uh, are involved together in the work that he does with the Ut, the organization which I serve as a mentor <coughs> to. <coughs> I'm exhausted. I'll bet. This is my third, uh, no, my sixth talk in two days. And in between that, I've had to speak to Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. It's been a pleasure. Leadership. I'm going to go to trying to deal with leadership from two totally different places. I want to talk about the need for leadership and models of leadership that we can learn from biblical texts. And then I want to learn some Talmud with you. The purpose being not only to learn about leadership, but Jews, when they get together, should learn Talmud. It so reflects our personality, not ever agreeing with each other. <laughs> it's a part of our very DNA. So let me begin with the first part. Leadership is a dynamic force. The purpose of a leader is to move people. If someone has been a Jewish leader and has left people that they are leading where they were, they have not led. I want you to know, I may have said it in one of the previous talks, when I first came to the United States of America, I never knew that there were American Jews. I only thought there were American Jewish leaders. Because every group I met with was a leadership mission, a leadership task force, a leadership institute, a leadership that. And I kept on saying to myself, who the heck are they leading? <laughs> I never met Amcha. Well, since then I've got to know the country better. I've known the Jewish community better. And I want to take some time and apologize to those who were there at the JCC this morning because I'm going to repeat a little bit of what I said there. 
in trying to think of Jewish models, when I say that leadership is meant to move people, I naturally look to my Jewish sources and say, can I find someone who wants to remove Jews? How do they do it? And what can I learn from them? So I naturally look at our Jewish texts. I take this little black book called the Bible. And in it I find a character who appears quite often and wanted very much to move Jews. His name was God. He appears quite often in the book. And he wanted to move the Jews out of the land of Egypt into the land of Israel. It's fascinating to look at how God set about that very important task. First of all, the most obvious question that should come to mind when reading the book of Exodus is how come God did not create the single leader who could do the entire job himself? How long would it have taken God to create such a leader? He built the world in six days. I think in 17 seconds he could have produced such a leader. God did it. You know why? God knew that if you want to lead Jews, you need a committee. <laughs> There's no question about it. There's no room for single leaders, for autocratic leadership within the Jewish world. If you want to lead Jews, you have to leave room for others to lead as well. Bibi, can you hear me? <laughs> There's no room to lead alone. And God sets out to build a committee. And I want to talk about four characters from which there is an amazing amount that we can learn. The committee, the A-team that God put together to accomplish the task. Four characters, Moses, his brother Aaron, his sister Miriam, and their successor Joshua. The four of them together got the task done. What is it in the joint qualities of the four that enabled the task to be fulfilled? So I want to take a quick look at each one of them individually. You heard that I was the international president of Hill. That was a very big organization. We had some 1,300 staff. I spent most of my life hiring and firing people. Former staff of Hill is sitting right here. This young lady has, for me, has a great yichas. She's the great-granddaughter of Mordechai Kaplan. And everything I've spoken about in every other speech, other than this one, has been about Kaplan. Because everything I knew about what I was talking about came from Kaplan. So you have, you know what an honor it is for me to be his great-granddaughter. But she also worked for Hill, which is as much as a yichas, almost. 
if Moses would have applied for a job at Hill, and the only CV that I have is the Bible, there's no way in the world that I would have hired him. <laughs> the gentleman was totally inarticulate. He couldn't speak. He was always stuttering. The Talmud tells us that Moses was a stutterer because his love of Israel far exceeded his ability to express it. Maybe, but he still stuttered. He was always shoving his nose into other people's business. He sees two Jews fighting, he gets involved. He sees a Jew and an Arab fighting, he gets arrested. He was very unpopular. The whole Torah is filled with Jews complaining about Moses. The whole Torah is Moses said, and Moses said, and Moses said, and Moses said. When did he listen? <laughs> and he was a horrible administrator. His father-in-law comes to visit him, says to his daughter, where's Mo? She says he's a Jewish leader, he's not home. <laughs> Where is he? He's outside the camp judging every single case by himself. He had never heard of delegation of authority. He would have flunked every course at Harvard Business School. He had none of the qualities of leadership that we normally look for. And yet he becomes Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest Jewish leader of all time, for one reason only. He was driven by a vision. He was driven by a mission. He knew exactly where he wanted to lead the Jews to. <coughs> and nothing moved him from that vision. Not popularity. Not bribery. Not a relationship with Pharaoh. He did not move from that vision. He stuck to the mission. His brother Joshua, his brother Aaron, was basically the exact opposite. His brother Aaron was known as an Ohev Shalom Verodev Shalom. A lover of peace and a pursuer of peace. He was always looking for consensus. If I try to imagine in my mind Aaron, I picture him walking around the desert with his arm around his fellow Jew saying, share with me. How can I help you? He knew how to listen very carefully. He listened to Moses' mission and vision. He was unbelievably articulate. It was he who could articulate Moses' vision. He was superbly popular. When Moses died, the entire people of Israel cried for 30 days. When, when Joshua died, 
When Aaron died, the entire people of Israel cried for 30 days. When Moses went off to die, die nobody even went with him. He would have made a wonderful Federation chairman. <laughs> and when he and Moses worked together, everything worked well. But they weren't enough to get the Jews out of the land of Egypt. You know why? They were very cerebral. They used the mouth. They tried to convince. They approached the head. If you want to move Jews, you can't only talk to them here. You've got to hit them in the push. <coughs> You've got to touch their heart. You've got to get them to move their feet. And that's why God adds to this committee the third member of the team, this woman, Miriam. You're going to have to forgive me for a chauvinistic statement. But I'm a South African and I'm old enough. <laughs> Look at this woman, Miriam. The whole Torah, she doesn't speak. And she's a Jewish woman. Imagine that. Doesn't speak. You know what she does? She sings and dances. She plays the tambourine. She brings music. She supplies a very important, a very important element for leadership known as passion. Passion. You know what I'm talking about? I always say the story I was last week, I was in London, England. I said to them, passion. They said, oh. <laughs> you can't lead without passion and the three of them the bearer of the vision the articulator of the vision the carrier of the passion are enough to get the Jews out of Egypt but they're not enough to get them into the land of Israel you know why? None of them knew how to run the computer. None of them knew how to balance a budget. None of them knew how to organize a speaker's trip. None of them knew how to make sure that the chairs were in place. None of them knew how to arrange for them to cross the river and who should cross the river and who shouldn't cross the river. And that's why God adds the fourth member of the team, Joshua, who should, in my opinion, become the archangel of the Jewish professional. And the four of them get their task together. They get the task done. I think it's very important lessons. We don't read, we read the Torah, we don't read it carefully enough. But those questions and these issues are all right there. 
If you try, you know, when Moses and Aaron were working together, things looked good, but there was already a sign of something going wrong. Because Moses gets a message from the chairman of the board. Mo, you better come to a board meeting. It's going to be a long board meeting, 40 days and 40 nights. It's going to take place on top of a mountain. <coughs> and Moses climbs the mountain and he leaves the people of Israel in the hands of this leader, Joshua, who had all the qualities of leadership. And what do they do? They build a golden calf. The moment you separate leadership from a mission, the moment you separate leadership from a vision, you end up building a golden calf. It's the story of Jewish history. I think it's the story of Western history. You have to be guided by a vision. And even when they added Miriam with a passion, it was enough to get out of Egypt. But as I said, they couldn't get into Israel until they also managed to find the way of translating the vision, the articulation, and the passion into a program of action. Four elements which do not have to divide the way they divided among these four people. But all of these four elements have to be present in order to fulfill a leadership task. So the lessons that I learned from this are, you want to be a Jewish leader? Don't try to lead alone. Leave room for others to lead with you. In order to do that well, you should know who you are. You don't have to tell anybody else who you are. But at least be honest with yourself. And look for others who complement the qualities that you have in order for you to be able to work together towards that goal. Secondly, if you have a mission and it can't be articulated, it's really not worth very much. Let me tell you, I spent my life as a Jewish educator running large Jewish organizations, which means that in actual fact I was in reality a fundraiser. People ask me, what do I do? I'm in education. I knew what a lie I'm telling you. I spent most of my life trying to raise money. President of Hill, what do I do trying to raise money? You want to know, I could never have raised a penny and I'm a person filled with vision if you cannot articulate a vision. When you want to go to a foundation or you want to go to a funder, having a vision alone and not being able to articulate the vision is not enough. So therefore you need the articulation of the vision. Don't try to build, get a task done without finding something in what you're doing that you can be passionate about. And 
then make sure that you have people or that you can turn all of this into a program of action. But most importantly, do not try to lead without a vision. One of the biggest problems that I find in the Jewish world today, and I hint that it was anybody here at my previous talks, too bad, you're going to hear something again. <laughs> One of the biggest problems facing the Jewish people is the inability that we have in articulating a clear message and a clear vision. Because for me, the vision of our day, the mission of our day for a Jewish leader, is how can we ensure the continued, significant renaissance of the Jewish people? She's smiling at the word renaissance, right? The mission of our time is how can you ensure a continued significant renaissance of the Jewish people. I said the Jewish people, not the Jewish religion. I'm not going to go into this in detail spoke about it yesterday at length or this morning at length or at last night, whenever I spoke. <laughs> Judaism is not a religion. It never was. Our desire in America to turn things into religion is what turned your great-grandfather into a denomination which he never meant. The Jews are a people. They have a religion. <coughs> a very famous philosopher of religion, Alfred North Whitehead, <coughs> writes, religion is that which a man does in his moments of aloneness. And he's right. Religion is that innermost relationship between the single human being individual and God Almighty. If that's religion, that ain't Judaism. Jews do not relate as single human being individuals to God Almighty. We only relate to God talking out of a sense of belonging to our community, out of a sense of peoplehood. My apologies to those who were at the hill this afternoon. The holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, we stand before God Almighty. We ask Him to forgive us for our sins. And it's a prayer we say five times. And you beat your chest as you say this prayer. Five times. A long list of sins for which we ask God to forgive us. 
and we beat our chest. And as I said, I'm a very passionate prayer. For months afterwards, I can't touch myself. I'm all beaten up. But you want to know something? At least half those things on that list I've never done. I don't know why. Maybe I just never had the opportunity. <laughs> but I've never done that. So why the heck am I beating my chest? Because we Jews do not pray in the singular. We don't pray in the singular. We pray in the plural. It's not al shechatati in al shechatanu. God forgive me for our sins because you talk only out of a sense of community. If that's the mission for which we all need today leadership, then somebody has to be out there talking about the fact that we're a people. Articulating that message clearly. But where do we do it? Where do we teach the sense of being a people? When I walk into a synagogue today, I'm making a statement of how I differ from other Jews. If I'm Orthodox, I'm saying I'm not conservative and I'm not reformed. If I, if, I'm, if I walk into a conservative synagogue, I'm saying I'm not Orthodox and I'm not reformed. But where do I make the statement that I'm a part of my people irrespective of my ideological differences? And you can only do that if you articulate the sense of peoplehood. If you ask me what is my biggest disappointment as president of Hillel International, because we've brought up a generation of students on campus who had no idea and who have no idea that we are a people. <coughs> I did it today with Hillel students. Did a simple exercise that I've been doing all the time. Saying to the students, apples, oranges, bananas, lettuce, tomatoes, cucumbers, shirts, jackets, pants. I said, Jew, fill in the two blanks that follow it. Like that. Like that. Everybody in the room said, Jew, Christian, Muslim. Automatically, you were there. Oh, you came late. <laughs> Just this afternoon, and it happens every time I talk to students in this country. Their immediate identification of what is Judaism is a religion. Is it important for you that kids on campus understand Israel, develop a relationship with Israel, try to be supportive of Israel? Do you think it's important? Well, then how are you going to explain to them? Why is it that all of a sudden a religion has a state? There's no religion in the world that has a state. Other than? Thank you. And there was a gentleman, a good friend of ours by the name of Yasser Arafat, 
who made the suggestion that he would, out of the goodness of his heart, sweet man, give the Jews two square miles in Jerusalem where they can have a Jewish Vatican with a Jewish Pope or two Popes, an Ashkenazic Pope and a Svanic Pope. <laughs> But not a state. And I'm sorry to say Arafat was 100% right. States do not have the right to religion. Peoples do. And we, by not being able to articulate a clear mission, undermine everything that we are trying to achieve. Leadership has to talk about these issues. They've got to be able to find a way of articulating a message that the next generation can understand. The way you transfer messages from one generation to another is through a process called education. Professor Balin at Harvard, that's not the Israeli politician Balin, a different Balin, makes the statement, education is the means by which culture transfers itself from one generation to another. It's not the method by which we transfer, even if we shut up and don't get involved, an educational process is going to take place by which culture is transferred and messages are transferred from one generation to another. But if it's done automatically, it's not always the correct message, <coughs> which is why Jewish education calls for leadership to be involved in education. If you decide that you're going to be every Friday night, go out camping, and you don't take candlesticks with you, you are making a message about what's more important, camping or Shabbat. If you take candlesticks with you, you're making a different kind of statement. So involvement in education is something that leadership has to ensure in order for culture to be transferred from one generation to another. So we have this model of leadership that I spoke about. We have a mission that we'd like to achieve. We know that we want to be articulate about that mission. We know that we want to be passionate about that mission. And yet throughout Jewish education, there's been an ongoing debate about the involvement of leadership in education. And what I would like to do now is the main reason for my having come this evening, because I want to study a Talmud text. You want to just say about the text? I want to have a look at a particular Gemara in Masechet Shabbat 
in which there is an ongoing debate between two great schools of thought in the Talmud. I know to some people it's frightening to learn Talmud. It's great. And what a great experience it is. Let's try it. <coughs> the Talmud is made up of six starim, six orders in the Talmud. Each of these orders are divided into tractates. Each of these tractates are divided into chapters. Each of the chapters are divided into pages. Each of the pages are divided into A and B, right side or left side of the page. And the sum total of that usually takes up a very large shelf. In a book, in a book, uh, of a bookshelf. Does anyone need anyone extra? That what happens in the Talmud is a world of association of ideas. Very often, the just the mention of a word changes the entire subject because the rabbis start discussing what the word has triggered off in their minds. So we are looking at a chapter. in the tractate of Shabbat that has nothing to do with Shabbos. What's it doing there? I don't know. But it's, that's where it appears. Tractate Shabbat and it tells the story of three people who tried to become Jews. And it tells the story of two schools of thought in the Talmud. One known as the house of Hillel and the other known as the house of Shammai. We are traditionally told that the difference between the two of them, and it is usually but not always correct, Hillel is the more lenient and Shammai is the more strict. I don't think that that's a difference between them. I think the difference between them is educational concept, and approaches to leadership. And you find these two schools of thought arguing throughout the entire Talmud. The school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. Remember that I ran an organization that was called Hillel. Maybe at the end of this lesson we'll understand why it was not called Shammai. Maybe it should have been. We are going to start with page one. I think the page, the page on numbers so that makes no difference. There. There are numbers? Yep. Yes, page one. Will somebody read in Hebrew? No, in English, sorry. <laughs> somebody want to read? Go ahead, say it loud. Our rabbis taught a certain heathen once came before Shammai and asked him, How many Torah? but have you? Two, he replied, the written Torah and the oral Torah. Jewish tradition tells us that when Moses climbed Mount Sinai, God gave him two Torahs, a written Torah and an oral Torah. A question that's been bothering me since the age of seven or eight 
has been how long would it have taken God to write the oracle? <laughs> I'm going to come back to that later because it's a serious question. God never wrote the oracle. Some rabbi did. How many Torah have you? Two, he replied. The written Torah and the oral Torah. Go on. I believe you with respect to the written, but not with respect to the oral Torah. Okay, Rabbi, I'll accept the written Torah, but I don't want to accept the oral Torah. Go on. Make me a proselyte on condition that you teach me the written Torah only. To but use your American terminology, convert me Make me a Jew on condition that I accept the written Torah only. But he scolded and repulsed him in anger. Shammai. <laughs> scolded him and repulsed him in anger. When he went before Hillel, he accepted him as a proselyte. I just want us to get the story straight. We'll go into it. It's very intricate afterwards. He goes to Shammai. Shammai repulses him in anger. He goes to Hillel. What does Hillel do? Immediately accepts him. Immediately. And he wasn't a reform rabbi. <laughs> Go on. On the first day, he taught on Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet. The following day, he reversed them to. The guy comes to Hillel. Hillel accepts him. Says to him, okay, you want to accept the written Torah, you have to be able to read it. I'm going to teach you how to read it. You see, this is an Aleph, this is a Bet, this is a Gimel, this is a Dalit. The next day the guy comes to class, he says to him, you have to read it now, listen. This is a Dalit, this is a Gimel, this is a Bet, this is the Aleph. He turned around. Go on. But yesterday you did not teach them to me thus, he protested. Must you then not rely upon me? Then rely upon me with respect to the oral Torah of two. I just want to be clear the story is understood. He says, you know, says to him, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Ah, Dalet, Gimel, Bet, Aleph. The guy says, but yesterday you didn't teach to me. He says, you have to rely with me. You're going to have to rely on me about what those letters are. So why don't you rely on me about whether there is an oral Torah or not? Is the story clear? Okay, we're going to have to come back to this because there's a lot of problems there. Yeah. Story number two, somebody else. On another occasion it happened that a certain heathen came before Shammai and said to him, make me a proselyte on condition that you teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot. This is probably the most famous story in the whole Talmud. Teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot. When I was at Hillel, we organized an annual campaign on campuses. How can you get more students to stand for the longest time? We gave a prize of standing on one foot. Because it's a Hillel trick. But go on. He said to Samai, make me a proxenite on condition that you teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot. Thereupon he repulsed him with the builder's cubit which was in his hand. Shammai hits him with a builder's cubit that's in his hand. When he went before Hillel, he said to him, What is hateful to you, do not, do not to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. 
while the rest is the commentary thereof, go and learn it. He comes to Hiro, teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot. Hiro says to him, what is hateful to you, you shouldn't do to others. That is the whole Torah. All there is this commentary, now go and learn it. Story's clear? Let's go to story number three. Somebody else please read. No. Go on then, yeah. More. On another occasion it happened that a certain heathen was passing behind a Beth Hamidrash when he heard the voice of a teacher reciting, and these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate and an ephod. Stop. A non-Jew just happened to be walking past a yeshiva, a Bet HaMidrash. He heard them learning about his clothes, called the, the breastplate and the ephod. What did he say? Go on. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate and an ephod. Said he, for whom are these? For the high priest, he was told. Then said that heathen to himself, I will go and become a proselyte, and that I may be appointed a high priest. He's standing outside the Bet Midrash, learning about his great clothes that the high priest wears. He says, hey, who are these clothes for? He's told they the clothes for the high priest. He says, you know what? I'm going to convert in order to become the high priest so that I can get these clothes. What does he do? So he went to Shammai and said to him, make me a proselyte on the condition that you appoint me a high priest. But he repulsed him with the builder's cubit which was in his hand. Oh, there we go again. There's the builder's cubit. He hit him with the builder's cubit in his hand. Go on. He then went before Hillel who made him a proselyte. He goes to Hillel and Hillel accepts him immediately. I'm sorry, you're, you're looking that way. I mean, that's the Gemara. What can I do? That's what it says. He don't accept him right away. <laughs> he don't accept him right away. Made him a proselyte. And then what does he don't say? Said he to him, can any man be made a king but who knows the art of government? Do you go and study the arts of government? If you want to become a king, you'd have to study, how to, you'd have to study the arts of government. You now want to be the high priest. You better go and study how to become the high priest. When he came to, and the stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death, he asked him, to whom does this verse apply? So Hero sends him to study the laws of the high priest. And in these laws of the high priest, they teach about a place called the Holy of Holies, the Kodesh HaKodeshim, that no one is allowed to go in to accept the high priest and he only one day a year. And it says there that anybody that cometh nigh, which in English anybody who comes near, shall be put to death. What does this proselyte ask? Even to David, king of Israel was the answer. Who does this apply to? Even to King David, the king of Israel. Thereupon, Thereupon that proselyte reasoned within himself. Uh, a fortiori. 
Stop if, a second. If Israel... A fortiori is a form of legal reasoning. Yeah. Now in Hebrew, as alachat kama vakama, or kal vachomer, all the more so. If something is true in one case, all the more so is it true in another case. So this guy figured in his mind, a fortiori, Italian forte is a stronger, a stronger case, go on. If Israel... If Israel, who are called sons of the omnipresent, and who in his love for them he designated them, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Yet it is written of them, and the stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death. How much more so a mere proselyte who comes with his staff and wallet? Stop. He figured in his own mind, <coughs> this is true about King David. All the more so is it true about myself, the simple proselyte who came with his staff and wallet. Put down the papers for a minute. And please answer me a question. Who would you buy a used car from? Hillel or Shammai? After reading this. Tell me. From Shammai, he tells it like it is. Right! Join me in a campaign. We're going to change the name of that organization from Hillel to Shammai. He tells it the way it is. Who do you like more, Hillel or Shammai? Hillel. Of course. You don't like someone who's honest. You don't like the person who tells it as it is. What's going on here? What are the differences between Hillel and Shammai? Anybody? Yes. Shemai closes the conversation and uh, there's no opportunity for influence. Okay. There's no opportunity for anything. Sorry? There's no opportunity for anything. There's no opportunity for anything. It's my way or no way. Well, but you could argue that Shammai has higher expectations. If you want to be part of a people, there are certain high expectations, and therefore my product is a high product. And it's like buying an Apple phone versus a really cruddy phone. And Hillel <laughs> is saying, well, we'll get you in on the entry-level model, or the car, you know, the lower-level car, and we'll sell you up to the higher level. Right. So Hillel is saying to him, so, it's, so Shammai is not necessarily that bad. He just has higher expectations, higher right. requirements. Right, Shammai is not that bad. It's a better product. And what about Hillel? Hillel's where we're ready to compromise on the product so we can then sell you on the higher model later. That's why when I come to you and I say to you, convert me on condition that you make me the high priest. You know you can't and you still convert me. What is that? Use car salesman. <laughs> it's I, expect, I think it's high expectation and he wants to and the door is open and he's ready to do it. So you should give them okay, so the guys go with maybe. I disagree. I think that what Hillel is doing is bringing him in and showing him indirectly the point that. At the all truth. costs, even to the extent of you being able to break, I mean, he's making, a guy comes to you and says, 
I'm, I'm willing to do this on condition. You have to, a leader accepts people where they're at, not okay. how you want them you should to be. Mission, huh? Well, Hillel understands human nature, and he knows that people believe things better when they figure them out themselves. Mm -hmm. So he's letting him do that. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. So you think they're both right? They're as right as the other. One is as right as the other. Maybe. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Well, I think, you know, Shammai, a little bit as Ari was saying, is the expectation is you're in my boat, you're going to do it my way, and the standards are going to be thus. And Hillel is saying, come in. Test the waters a little. Let me show you a little bit and show you a little bit more and show you a little bit more. And eventually, you're going to get to this level. So why not say, you know what? You seem like a nice guy. Come and live with me for a year and get you to taste this. And then I'll convert you. Why does he immediately convert the guy? I mean, there, could be, there are a lot of different answers to it, but the idea of if you get people in the door, they've now bought into it. And right. to walk away is much harder. Even though you create misconceptions. Even though you create misconceptions. Even though you lie. <laughs> Why you what is hateful to you, well, he can't you should not do to others. But maybe it wasn't That hateful. is the whole Torah. <laughs> what does that have to do about going to the mikveh of keeping Shabbat? Nothing. Of all the laws. So what is this? What is hateful to you? <coughs> Human dignity. Whose? Human dignity. Whose? The applicant. The applicants. Okay. So I'm going to lie to you because I have real belief in your human dignity. Therefore I'm going to lie to you. It's I want to read one more Gemara, one more Talmud, which is very different. It's on page four. It's from a different section of the Talmud, Talmud Dubot. How does one dance before the bride? The Torah tells us one has to dance before a bride on a wedding day to make her joyful. It's a special occasion. The rabbis asked the question, Plato asked, what is truth? Our rabbis asked the question, how does one dance before the bride? If you go to any Orthodox wedding, they sing it as a, as a song. How does one dance before the bride? Bet Shammai says, the bride as she is. And Bet Hillel says, beautiful and graceful bride. Hillel says when you come to dance before the bride, you tell her she's beautiful and graceful. Even if she looks like she's just been run over by a steamroller. <laughs> 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 says Shammai, no! 
You get it? You look like you've been run over by a steamroller. Not be quiet. The bride as she is. You tell the truth. Said Bet Shammai to Bet Hillel. If she was lame or blind, does one say of her beautiful and graceful bride? Whereas the Torah said, keep thee far from a false matter. Hillel, what are you doing? You're lying to her. What do you mean? Beautiful and graceful bride. Just look at her. She looks like Ari. I mean, what's wrong with you? <laughs> what do you mean beautiful and graceful bride? How can you say that? Were we not taught keep thee far from a false matter? Midvar sheker tirchak. Don't lie. How does Hira respond? Said Ben Hira to Ben Shammai, according to your words, if one has made a bad purchase in the market, should one praise it in his eyes? Or should one, it's a spelling mistake, deprecate it? Surely one should praise it in his eyes. I mean, Mike Lefkowitz just went and spent a fortune on this new suit. It's a horrible shade of maroon. <laughs> it doesn't match his eyes. One leg is longer than the other. It doesn't really close. There's a button missing. It has a stain on his back. But he's just spent his last penny on that suit and he is so proud of his first suit. And he comes to you and tells you, what are you going to say to him? Eh? I could have gotten it for you wholesale. What are you going to say to him? It looks good. It's fine. What are you going to do? He don't says, obviously you're going to say to him, looks good. You know why? Because we are also taught, and the translation here is terrible. <coughs> Always should the disposition of man be involved. Now, what's the Hebrew word? Be engaged with other people. What is the debate between Hillel and Shammai over here? Why did the Talmud bring this story? <coughs> Why did the Talmud bring this story? What for? What do they want to show? What's going on here between Hillel and Shammai? That there are two different ways to, uh, to approach the problem. Right. One is, one is uh, maybe to lie a little, but make the person feel good. Okay. One is a little younger man. Sorry? One is a little grover younger man, and the other one is a little more gentle. Who's the grover younger man? Shammai. <laughs> sure. All right. right over here. Yes, dear. I see it differently. I see it that if someone feels good about themselves, then they're happy with it. So you rejoice with them. Yes, yeah, because it's a personal okay. feeling, a personal reflection. But it's also, what is the 
myself and my teacher, Rabbi Hartman, on this page of the Gemara. And it's been 17 years that we're fighting about it. Maybe one more year and you will come to a conclusion. Well, he passed away. So <laughs> yeah. That means you're the Hartman winner. says that this issue is around the issue of beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. There is no such thing as an objective That's right. truth. That's what said. All truths are subjective. And more, and more importantly, the relationship between people is more important ultimately. Okay. No. I, th I think it is about ambiguity. And I, I thought about the iPhone comparison, you know, and I don't worship an iPhone. And so, but by the way, don't listen to you. Get a Samsung. If you <laughs> the point is don't get that there going. are that there is more than one answer. There are more phones than just one. And if I was thinking about if a mother walks along with a baby, and you look at that baby, and the baby is not attractive, and you don't say to the mother, that's an ugly baby. You know, you don't say that. Because the truth is, it's not an ugly baby. It's a beautiful baby. I reached an age where I, I actually get excited about babies. And they're always beautiful. They're always and then, then you say, so I'm listening to this and I'm thinking it's it's not about the truth or lies. It's about rigidity and being Okay. Wrong. That is Hartman. That's what Rabbi Hartman believes. He may be right, I think he's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean it also comes down to the whole idea of re relational leadership. And by Shammai saying, you know, no, you're wrong, or just, you know, basically hitting someone on the head and saying, get out of here, he's not valuing the opportunity to build a relationship. Whereas Hillel is saying, come in, let me build this relationship with you, and let it move forward. Could be. What I think is happening over here is they brought this page, the Talmud brings this page, in order for us to have a discussion around the subject of what happens when values clash. What happens when values clash? In the Jewish world, the land of Israel is a value. And so is peace. And when you're in a situation where you can't have both, what is the decision that you make? We always live when dilemmas face us. Here you're caught with a dilemma where this bride is at her wedding. She doesn't look that good. <laughs> what do you do? Are you guided by the value of truth or are you guided by the value of always being engaged in other people's feelings? And the Talmud brings the story in my mind to teach us the difference between Hillel and Shammai. Shammai, absolute and total value, his superordinate value in life, 
is truth. Truth at all costs. There is nothing more important than it. You know, didn't you learn? Midvar sheker tirchak. Keep thee far from a false matter. And he says, doesn't yell. Only when you have the truth do you yell. Hillel says, Shammai, didn't you learn that you have been to be engaged with other people's feelings? Because for Hillel, the superordinate value is the relational, the relations, relational value. The value of the relationship with other people. Now, if you take that as now as part of your knowledge about the difference between Hillel and Shammai, I want to go back for a minute to our three stories. Story number one. A man comes to Shammai and says to Shammai, how many Torahs have you? And Shammai says two. The man says to Shammai, Accept me on condition that I accept the written Torah only. What does Shammai have to respond? He is guided by truth, which is not a bad thing. It's not evil, but that's his superordinate value. I didn't ask you to come and ask me how many Torahs we have. You came. You asked me. I said two. You only want to say one? No. Goodbye. The guy comes to Hillel. He says to Hillel, how many Torahs do you have? He says two. Accept me on condition that I accept the written Torah only. Hillel is guided by the value of always being engaged with other people. <coughs> Hillel, when somebody comes to Shammai with a question, the first question Shammai always asks himself is what is the true answer to that question? When someone comes to Hillel with a question, the first question he asks himself, who's asking? Who's asking the question? Now you tell me. You know this guy now as well as Hillel does. Who's asking the question? Why does Hillel accept him? Come on. Yeah. Well, there's a big problem here. I mean, of course, but. That's why I raised it. Yes. But Hillel in the story has the opportunity to spend a year with this man and teach him the truth. We don't always have an opportunity to deal with people. They're not necessarily going to while they stand on one foot and then go and learn. That's that's a very big problem. I'm not sure that that's the issue here. That's a problem, but I'm not sure that's the issue here. 
Hero says to himself, Shammai says, what's the true answer to the question? There's two Torahs, goodbye, finished. Hero says, who's asking the question? You were going to say? It seems to me Hillel could see that this fellow was sincere. By what? By the fact that he could, he was concerned that he would get, that he would truly learn the religion. What is the man's problem? He doesn't the guy says, I'm willing to accept the written Torah. Read, it's Talmud. Every word's important. But he was serious about learning. I'm willing to accept the written Torah, but I'm not willing to accept the oral Torah. What's he saying? What does he not say? You know what this guy's problem is? He only believes what he can see. What? He only believes what he can see. And, oh, right! Who gave the written Torah? God. And the oral Torah? God. But it was passed down by rabbis from generation to generation. He don't says, look at this guy. He's got no trouble with God. He's willing to accept the written Torah. Yeah. Who does he have a problem with? Me. Rabbis. Rabbis. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what he says? The first principle of Dewey. Know when to trust yourself as an educator. Mm -hmm. He says, that's his problem. I know how to deal with that. And look what this great educator does. He says, okay, you want to read the written Torah? You're going to have to learn from me how to read the written Torah. I'm going to teach you how to read. Aleph, Dek, Gimel, Dalit. The next day he comes back, he says to him, ah, uh -uh. Dalit, Gimel, Dalet, Aleph. The guy says, but you did not teach me thus yesterday. He says, look, you want to get the written Torah? You can't get the written Torah without trusting someone to teach you. You cannot trust without a faith, without somebody involving themselves in the process. Those were the rabbis. So why would you accept me to teach you how to read it and not accepting the rabbis for the way they passed it down? I want to skip story number two and go to story number three. I'm going to come back to end with number two. Story number three. A guy just happens to be walking past the Bedouin Midrash. He hears about these beautiful clothes that the boy wears. I want those clothes. He says, who are they for? They're for the high priest. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to convert so that I can become the high priest to get those clothes. So he comes to Shammai and he says to Shammai, convert me on condition that you get, that you make me the high priest. What does Shammai have to do? What does Shammai have to say? Can someone make you the high priest? Of course not. No. You can't become a, the high priest like this, you're a Kohen. You can't be, you know, I don't know if you know the story of the man who came to the rabbi. He said to the rabbi, I want to become a, I want to become a Kohen. The rabbi says, I can't do it. He says, please, rabbi, it's very important. He says, I can't do it. He said, I was planning a $200,000 donation. I'll do it, but don't tell anybody how it happened. From now on, you're a Kohen. As the guy walks out, the rabbi says, tell me. Why was it so important for you to be a Kohen? He says, because my father was a Kohen and my grandfather was a Kohen. 
But if you're not a Kohen, you can't. You can't be. So he comes to Shammai and he says, convert me on condition that you make me the high priest. What shall I do? Sends him away. He hits him with a builder's cubit. It's beautiful phraseology. You know what a builder's cubit is? It's a thing which has water in the middle that you check to see if something which is level. Shammai was on the level with him. He tells the truth. He gives the straight answer. He rejects him with truth. He comes to Shammai and Shammai says, hmm. Who, and he says, who's asking the question? Now you tell me, who's asking the question? You know this guy as well as Hillel does, and Hillel converts him. Who's the guy who come and say, Rabbi, convert me on condition that you make me the high priest? Because I want those clothes. Maybe he aspires to a lot. What? Maybe he aspires to a lot. A man who aspires to a lot. I don't know if that's a reason to accept him, but it could be. What else? Who's this guy who says? Who could it be? Why did he not accept it? He's got a good quality there. What's the quality? Can you? What? Can't be that he just wants nice clothes. No, he's a man. He wants to be a leader. He wants to. He's not someone who just wants to become a regular Jewish person. He wants to become the high priest. He wants to become Maybe. president of the United yes. States. So he wants to become a citizen. His mother told him to be Is that a reason to... Uh, <laughs> mother, that's a reason to accept him? Yeah, because somebody's yeah, He didn't come to him and say, Rabbi, convert me because I want to become a Jew and I believe in the religion. And all he really wanted was the clothes. He came and he said, Convert me because I want those clothes. You know what Hero says? Look at this guy's honesty. I can build on that. Mm. And the second principle of duty, of duty, know when to trust the people. What does Hero do? He doesn't say go and learn, go, come and learn with me. He says to him, go and learn. And he searches him to learn something specific, knowing that his honesty will bring him alone to the answer that he cannot be the high priest. He's a teacher who can take risks built on a diagnosis of a situation that he feels will lead to the result he and what does he do? He says to him, go and study the laws of the high priest. And this guy comes to this thing that says, and the stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death. He asks the same question that he did at the beginning. Who does this refer to? Even King David, king of Israel. And the man reasons with his own mind, within his own mind, reasons if this is true of King David 
all the more so is it true of me. Now I've loved this page of time, I've taught it many times, but I was invited to San Francisco to teach it some years ago. It was the first time I taught it in English. And something suddenly struck me, because I couldn't understand story number three. A man comes to Shammai and says to Shammai, teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot. Shammai says, no way, out! I reject you my truth with a builder's cubit. I've been studying Torah for 80 years. I don't know it all. How am I going to teach it to you on one foot? He comes to Hillel and he says to Hillel, Teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot. And the hero says, who's asking the question? Anybody got any ideas? Who's asking the question? Who's this guy who says, teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot? What's he about? He wants to get the heart of it. He's impatient. He wants to get to the heart of it. What else? Wants to learn. Wants to learn? To me it sounds like it could be mocking. Teach me your whole Torah while I stand on one foot. I don't think he knows. Now look at that thing. Why was I bothered by this? Does he convert him? Read the story, number two. Does he not convert him? Doesn't say so. But in the Hebrew, it says he does. I'm stuck in San Francisco teaching this to a group of rabbis, and I don't know what's going on. So I called my son to Jerusalem. I said, Lonnie, I'm stuck. I don't understand this Gemara. What's happening here? He said, I'll call you back. He called back and reversed the charges. <laughs> and said to me, Abba, the story appears twice in the Talmud. One time that he converted him, and one time that he did it. And you know what I believe? that he never didn't know how to handle this person. And that is why he was a great Jewish educator. Because he never missed an opportunity to educate. And he gave him the only answer that is an answer in both cases. What did he say to him? What is hateful to you, you should not do to other people. If it's someone who's mocking, why are you doing this to me? Would you like it if I did it to you? What is hateful to you, you shouldn't do to other people. And if a person is looking for a handle through which to enter the world of Torah, what a wonderful opportunity, what a wonderful world, way of entering the world of the Jewish people. Then does he say to him, come and learn with me? 
Does he say to him, come and learn? Go and learn something specific? He says to him, go and learn. You prove to me who you are. Are you the mocker or are you the serious? Are you looking for the message or are you mocking me? Do we know when to trust the context? Create the context for education to take place. My friends, we are living in very, very difficult times for the Jewish people. Not because of the Iranian bomb, but because there is a complete sense of lack of uniformity among the Jewish people. We don't have clear answers about things. What is desperately needed is the kind of leadership that we'll read about right now and end, which is the bottom part of that page. Page four were. No, page two. Then he went before Shammai, this is the third proselyte, am I then eligible to be a high priest? Is it not written in the Torah, and the stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death? Shammai, why did you repulse me with the builder's cubit? Why didn't you engage me? Why didn't you tell me about this phrase? And then he went to Hill and said, Blessings rest on thy head for bringing me under the wings of the Shekinah. The Shekinah is the glory of God. Sometime later the three met. Who are the three? No. The three proselytes. Sometime later the three met. Said they, Shammai's impatience sought to drive us from the world. But Hillel's gentleness brought us under the wings of the Shekinah. We are living in very, very difficult times with serious questions about our identity, where we should be going, what our mission in life should be. Not only should we try to present an answer which ensures a sense of unity to the entire Jewish people, but we should learn how to present it with a sense of gentleness. <coughs> we are living in a world today in almost all arguments within, Jew within the Jewish people are fought with a bitterness and not with a sense of gentleness. It applies to the ways in which Israel is criticized. It applies to the way in which Israelis criticize diaspora Jewry. It applies in the way in which we fight with each other. There's no hero. There's Shammai. We need hero. I've always said, if you want to criticize, it's possible to criticize like a mother. You don't always have to criticize like a mother-in-law. <laughs> Thank you very, very much.
Um, recently, this was relatively big news, I think, in the conservative world, but Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove, from his pulpit in New York, from the major synagogues, said, it's time to rethink conversion. And I believe what he was saying is exactly what we just read about. He said, if someone comes to a synagogue and wants to convert, particularly interfaith families, you should convert them on the spot and then teach them. I'm wondering what your thoughts are. I've got two, two, two things to say to you. First of all, if you wouldn't have asked the question, Michael would have, uh, Mike would have raised the question of conversion. He's done that in every talk I've given so far, and I'm glad you did. I think this was in the New York Times, by the way, just a few yeah. weeks ago. I think it's a very, very serious issue. But number one, get rid of the word conversion. You cannot convert to a people. One of the biggest mistakes we make, we talk about people who join us as converted Jews. If we're a people or a family, relate to people who join us as adopted children, and therefore love them as you would any other child that you have. cannot get rid of that phrase converted Jew. I've never heard of such a nonsense. By the way, English was never the language that Jews lived by. What is the word in Hebrew for conversion? Giyur. Use the Hebrew. It doesn't mean to convert. The word giyur comes from the Hebrew word lagur, to come and share your lot with you. We can't afford to chase away people who want to join us. We cannot afford to chase away people who are willing to join us. But don't mislead them by telling them they're converting and then whispering about them. He's a converted Jew. Once they're converted Jew, that means they've joined the family. Once you're part of a family, you don't remind adopted children that they're adopted. Once they're part of the family, they're part of the family. But as I said, there is a phrase in Hebrew called a converted Jew. You know who's a converted Jew? Somebody who converts out. It's a legal term in the Talmud, a Yehudi Mumar. He's not called a Mumar, he's called a Yehudi Mumar. Somebody who converts out is a converted Jew. That's strange. Somebody who joins us is a Jew, somebody who leaves us is a Jew. There's only one sociological structure. This is for your great-grandfather. That makes that possible, and that's a family. And that's who we are. How do you join a family? You're even adopted by it. And there's nothing wrong with adopting people. And the time has come that if someone's willing to join us, let's adopt them. Let's make them <coughs> our family. A person converts out, he may think he's a Catholic. <laughs> By Jewish law, he's a converted Jew. 
how do you join a family? You're either born into it or you're adopted by it. How do you leave a family? You don't. You may think you have. How do you become a Jew? You're either born into it or adopted by it. How do you leave? You don't. Most rabbis would not agree with me. I recognize their right to be wrong. Oh. <laughs> we did have one recently that's starting to agree with you. So I just mentioned Elliot Cosgrove. Look him up on the internet. Yeah, yeah. Cosgrove does. He is so made big waves. There are a lot more, though. There are a lot more than one. Why you say there's one here in our community? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A few of them this, after the, this week have come to, come to me and tell me, oh, we never thought of it that way. No, I, I really think people, we're a family and I want my family to flourish. Can I tell you a secret? Don't tell anybody. There's a lot of very nice non Jews. Very nice non Jews. I wouldn't mind having some of them join us. Thank you all very, very much. Good night.